to the Iconic Podcast. This episode was recorded live at our 2021 symposium. Each year, Icon holds an academic symposium, which allows third-year students an opportunity to deliver a public talk based on their own personal research projects. In December 2021, six students were selected nationally to present their research. Jack's talk was recorded live over Zoom and is entitled Life, Death and Becoming Development as the Negantropic Integration of Relatedness and Self-Definition Enjoy! Thanks Dan, thanks everyone. Um, Great to be here. Tonight I'd like to speak about development, the development of life, the development of people, the development of ideas. Every decade or so, research in clinical psychology forces development in how we think about the mind and the various forms of suffering faced by our patients. Sudden shifts in understanding call for a reorganization of popular theories and models. John Bowlby's work on mother-infant separation, Aaron Beck's work on cognition, Van der Kolk's emphasis on the effects of childhood trauma, and Marsha Linehan's contribution to theories of personality disorders are all examples of paradigm shifts in psychological research and practice. In the last decade, several eminent theorists such as Peter Fonagy and John Allen have stated they believe Sidney Blatt's work to be the first comprehensive integrated model of personality development and that it may provide the foundations for the future paradigm of developmental psychopathology. In his book, Polarities of Experience, Blatt defines personality development as the integration of the capacity for relatedness and self-definition. For Blatt, establishing meaningful, mutually satisfying, reciprocal interpersonal relationships, as well as establishing a differentiated, integrated, realistic, essentially positive sense of self, are the most fundamental processes in personality development from infancy to old age. Importantly, self-definition and relatedness are involved in a constant dialectic interaction where progress in one dimension reciprocally primes advances in the other dimension. A mature sense of self that is differentiated and integrated cannot develop without satisfying interpersonal relationships. Likewise, mature reciprocal interpersonal relationships cannot exist without a coherent sense of identity and relatively clear self-definition. Here, psychopathology in various forms is reframed as compensatory exaggeration, the failure to achieve balance within a normal transactional developmental process. It's important to emphasize that Blatt's model doesn't just restate and cohere older theories and research. Instead, by pushing for a dialectic model, it allows for a total reinterpretation of the existing literature. This reinterpretation overcomes previous shortcomings of various psychodiagnostic models, such as the DSM, wherein mental disorders are conceptualized atheoretically, leading to symptom-based inferences and rampant comorbid diagnoses. Rather than present a summary of the 40 plus years of clinical research supporting Blatt's model, I instead want to demonstrate how this dialectic operates not only within the development of individual human lives, but extends beyond into the realms of ecology and evolutionary biology. Here, systems theory offers an apt illustration that life itself is engaged in this interweaving reciprocity of relatedness and self-definition. Following that, I will present a basic overview of early human development theory, which understands one's sense of self and identity evolves through the perception of oneself in the mind of other subjects. Finally, I will include the importance of death in developmental processes and reflect on my own experiences of personal development, a process I experience as self-becoming in the face of death. 
So let's get into it. While common sense suggests the universe is populated by autonomous objects or solid discrete entities, systems theory views the world as made up of many multi-layered bonds or relationships. When renowned biologist Gregory Bateson provocatively asks, what is the pattern that connects the orchid to the primrose and the dolphin to the whale and all four to me, he points to the interconnected network of relationships that constitute the biotic world. Thus, it is possible to describe not only biology, but physics as a science of relationship. While physics has shown that the universe is trending towards a slow heat death through a process known as entropy, it also demonstrates that biotic complexity itself is made possible by the knots and chains of relationship that form as time unfolds. This latter process, known as neg entropy, is the tendency for things to congregate, coagulate, and bond together into new, sophisticated, and complex forms. In a historical consideration of relatedness and self-definition, McAdams traced these themes to pre-Socratic discussions of love and strife, or union and division, as the two primary principles of the cosmos. Here one can imagine entropy and negentropy as the universal forms of the fundamental cosmic polarity of eros and thanatos, chaos and order, or relatedness and self-definition. While physicists ensure that eventually the universe will collapse into heat death, it seems, for the meantime at least, matter will also organise itself into complex and unique arabesques of unfolding form, from capybaras to coral reefs. Following this, the biologist Stuart Kaufman contends that complex forms will invariably arise from unorganised matter, and given enough time, these forms will develop lives of their own. The word which Kaufman uses to describe this process is autocatalysis, or mutual aid, the more diverse the components, the greater the potential for the emergence of autocatalytic chains, in which each molecule helps produce the others, stabilizing the system as a whole. Through forming relationships, the individual parts aid each other in the mutual overcoming of entropy, which in turn produce new parts to assist the negentropic process, and so on. Importantly, every living thing is the outcome of this process. The cells that constitute me result from an unbroken, autocatalytic chain reaching back to the first forms of self-organization ever. In his book Matter and Desire, poet and biologist Andreas Weber <clears throat> explores the ecological manifestations of relationality and self-definition through what he terms erotic ecology. For Weber, it is a fundamental principle of reality that two sides always enter into relationship such that both come away irrevocably changed. He notes that the river gravel is stone that water has transformed into a flowing form, and the swiftly cascading water is liquid that the stone has shattered and cracked. Only by altering one another do they become what they are. Thus, the world is not inhabited by discrete and autonomous objects, but is composed of a bustling network of dynamic interactions in which selfhood is defined through its relationship with alterity. For anything to be known and defined as itself, it must be touched and transformed by something it is not. Here, the river stone is ultimately defined through a mercurial engagement with its elemental antithesis, the flowing water. Hence, the erotic component of Weber's ecology is a manifestation of eros, the penetrative and transformative qualities of attachment that inhere and find expression, not only within psychology, but physics and biology. Considering these themes on the level of human attachment, Martin Buber poetically describes infant life as a pure natural association, 
a flowing towards each other, a bodily reciprocity. The infant joins his world by seeing, listening, feeling, forming. Nothing reveals itself except through the reciprocal force of confrontation. A child is able to develop a sense of self only because it confronts an other who displays independent, individual, and uncontrollable emotions. An other who is a subject. The experience of the boundary, the encounter with a you, makes possible the unfolding of the I. The parent's role in this relationship is to strengthen the child's sense of security and not hinder its unfolding, its development into the world. Through confronting the subjectivity of the mother, the infant gradually comes to know itself as a subject, as a being in the world. Beebe and Lockman reviewed an integrated extensive developmental research that indicates infant psychological development, consistent with Buber's emphasis on the reciprocal force of confrontation, develops from a fundamental process of engagement and disengagement, of relatedness and interruptions of this relatedness and its eventual repair. These experiences of engagement and disengagement provide the basis for the development of self and co-regulation during the first year. Notably, the process of engagement and disengagement in infancy is the basic prototype for processes of psychological development throughout life. A vital component of attachment security involves learning to trust the connection between inside reality and outside reality. With good enough accuracy, parents must get a sense of the inner meaning of the infant's display of raw affect and reflect it back in modulated form. It is this crucial task of the caregiver in helping the infant establish an internal homeostasis that forms the basis for the development of later physiological regulation, including emotional arousal. For example, when the infant cries in distress, the caregiver must infer if it is an expression of hunger, tiredness, or something else. Based on these guesses, the caregiver can soothe the distress. Over time, the caregiver can share its inferences in age-appropriate ways, such as, oh, you're upset because you missed your nap. In doing so, the child learns, first through co, then self-regulation, that its internal reality corresponds to an external language, that there is a map for the territory. In other words, it is the relational context that enables the capacity for self-definition. In terms of identity, humans are blind, deaf, and dumb without others, robbed of the affective subjectivity essential for being in the world. In a sense, this is the continuation of the autocatalytic chain as it emerges in the human realm. As neg entropy increases, energy clumps into atoms, atoms pull together as molecules, molecules assemble to form chain reactions which themselves eventually become enclosed as living cells against the environment that produced them. Some of these cells may combine in novel ways to create an organized colony of cells known as a human being which eventually emerges into an even greater nexus of reciprocity and subjectivity. Through relationships, the individual components become strengthened and more defined, reinforcing the connections, enacting a feedback loop that stabilizes the system as a whole. Whether atomic, cellular, or human, development in self-definition reciprocally primes advances in the dimension of relatedness and vice versa. Perceiver and perceived realize and frame one another mutually in an endless act of co-creation, forming, as Weber says, a single endless thread knotted onto itself forever. For me, developing is an unfolding process of becoming myself in the face of death. While I have mostly spoken tonight on birth and generativity, decay and death play an equally important role in development. In her book, Re-Inhabiting Reality, Freya Matthews calls for an ethics of becoming native. 
For Matthews, to be a native is to belong to the great cycle of birth, death, and regeneration. Here, the living world is the realm of born beings, who, being born, also perish, and are hence reincorporated into the body of the earth, contributing back to the folds the raw materials from which their life developed. That which lives strives towards self-organization, an act of idiosyncratic unfolding towards the inevitable fate which is the very price of being. Our sense of self is defined by our desire to become, grow, unfold, and declare ourselves in the world. Death is that which makes this desire, or eros, possible. Writing on the fear of death, Ernest Becker defines eros as the urge for more life, for developing the uniqueness of the individual creature, the impulsion to stick out of nature and shine, the urge for individuation. Thus, because death is real, we strive to define ourselves in the world, and it is our relationship to this fact which primes our capacity for self-definition. I was 24 when my mum died. Before this, I participated in the cultural disavowal of death common to those living in the West. I knew on an intellectual level that everyone dies, but due to the anxiety this produced, I lived as if I did not know. After she died, this pretense fell away. I had to accept that just as mum had died, the person who birthed me and engendered within me the seeds of my own subjectivity, I too would die. I felt unhoused from the world. I was engulfed by the belief that death nullified all that was meaningful in life. In a sense, it did nullify what was meaningful in life because what I found meaningful until then was not held in reverence to my own finitude. Once I had processed a lot of the emotional aspects of mum's death, I took up the task of how to live a meaningful life. I read works by Nietzsche, Camus, Heidegger, Rilke, Tolstoy, and anyone else that had spoken about living meaningfully in the face of death. Over time, I was able to find a home in my not-at-homeness through what Ortega calls the ideas of the shipwrecked. The driftwood works of other wayfaring minds who could offer me something to stay afloat. A potent lesson from this time comes from Nietzsche, who compels us all to become those we are, human beings who are new, unique, incomparable, who give themselves laws, who create themselves. These ideas allowed me to really think about who I was becoming, to define myself and develop in a way that included and integrated the reality of death. Just as Eros is made potent through its opposition to Thanatos, death makes life meaningful. Death opens up the crevices which life fills with unique and complex forms. It is not in spite, but because of death that life is possible, and it is this polarity that is reflected in development. Only in being towards death can one become who one truly is. Through my own encounter with the fundamental other of death, I was moved to deepen and expand my kinships and connections with friends and lovers in an act of mutual becoming which strengthens my sense of self in return. Like the double helix of DNA itself, these two streams of entropy and neg-entropy, eros and thanatos, relationality and self-definition, interlink and inform the developmental process from the most basic forms of matter to the spinning arms of spiral galaxies. Following this, I believe it is essential for psychotherapists to be aware of the broader context of our work, not just as clinicians, but also as human beings, each who exist as intersubjective links in this interminable chain of life, death, and becoming. Thank you for listening to another iconic podcast. Stay tuned for more. It's always iconic.